day I turned on the faucet and water came out. Imagine that. We've all come to expect that. You turn on the tap, you get water. Um, But there are places in the country, and there are people warning us that that may not always be the case. I just saw something on the news about uh, farmers along the Colorado River Basin that are in some distress there because of how low the Colorado River is. And in many places in the world, water is a precious resource. It's certainly like that in the Middle East, and it was even more so uh, in the day of the New Testament before there were desalination plants. This past week, my wife and I were talking about the baptism that was going to take place today. And she said, I I wonder if baptism has more meaning to people who live in places where water is a precious resource. Whenever our children are baptized, it reminds me to pray for the coming generation. And I've had a concern now that's been growing for several years. The straw that broke the camel's back of me becoming really concerned was a targeted ad that I got to me telling me about a great new AI, a generative artificial intelligence program that could save me an enormous amount of time by writing my sermons for me. Now, by itself, that might just sound funny and might not spark much concern, but it's not by itself. It's a part of a complex of events. Um, We don't get to choose the time that we live in. We don't get to choose the times our kids live in. That's God's doing. We're told in Acts 17 that he determines our boundaries, and he determines the times in history that we live My grandparents lived through the extreme physical hardship of the Great Depression. The next generation, I think, is standing on the threshold of a withering famine. But it's not a famine of bread. I want to read to you today from the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God's word. Father, today may the words of my lips and the meditations and reflections of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. There is a famine coming. I'm quite sure of it. I've lost sleep over it, but all of my worrying for it is not going to be able to stop it. Conditions have been increasing for years. So it's not just this one thing or that one thing. I noticed about 15 years ago, became concerned that um, 
knowledge of the biblical languages among the clergy is not valued. When, when I was a young Christian man, had no aspirations to the ministry, but my brother did, and he went to a school where he took Greek in his first semester because he wanted to go into the ministry. Now, this wasn't a Reformed church. It was a broad evangelical church. Um, I don't think he would mind me telling you because it was so many years ago that he got a, a D in Greek. And as a result of that, concluded that he was not called to the ministry because even in non-denominational churches, there was an expectation that the ministers would know something of the biblical languages. Fifteen years ago, when um, Reformed Theological Seminary's D.C. campus was in its infancy, they didn't have any languages offered there yet, and the students had to travel down to Jackson over the summer to take their languages. There was a young pastoral assistant at the local PCA who was in school there. He had a family. He was working there. It would have been a big hardship for him to go and live in Jackson for the summer to study languages, and he'd have to do that for several successive summers. So he asked me if I would teach him Greek. And the seminary approved the arrangement, but to make it feasible, because it was going to be two years that we'd spend together, I needed more than one student. And so he looked for other people who might be interested, and I used a mailing list uh, for the evangelical churches in Northern Virginia, just said, hey, would like to make available if anybody's interested, um, if you have any seminarians or a refresher course for some of the pastors, um, or maybe because at that point, many of the seminaries were no longer requiring study in the biblical languages. I just sent it out as an offer. A few hours later, I got a follow-up email that came from a, a church in the eastern end of the county. I'm quite sure that I was copied on it by mistake, that I wasn't meant to get that email. It read, brothers, regarding the email that went out from the pastor in Leesburg about Greek, don't waste your time with things that will take you away from ministry. I was stunned. I'm not sure what in his mind constituted ministry or real ministry. Apparently, deeply understanding God's word is not a part of that. I wish I could tell you that it was just those churches, it's those people. But I served on our Presbytery's Candidates and Credentials Committee for 18 years as chairman and as examiner in systematic theology and in New Testament Greek. And one young man that I met with for his Greek exam asked if he could uh, take his exam on his laptop computer. He said, uh, you know, I don't usually use a paper book, and I know that things are changing. I'm not a Luddite. And so as we were going uh, through the exam, and I was asking him to analyze certain things and to uh, exegete them, I got the sense from the manipulation of his uh, of his of his trackpad there, that he was doing more than simply using that uh, online or on-screen New Testament for reading his text. So I went over and I got uh, my copy of the Greek New Testament. I came over and I closed the lid of his computer and I handed it to him and I said, please uh, use this for the test. And he looked at me and he said, I can't read that. 
He didn't say that with any embarrassment or shame. In fact, he seemed irritated that I expected him to do so. Now, I want to tell you that thankfully that young man did not make it through the process. But what was disconcerting was that somehow this young man had made it through a seminary and had the degree of a seminary that ostensibly required of him the biblical languages. Now, you know, you might say, oh, those are uh, sad and unfortunate, but they're just locally anecdotal. Well, I'm not, again, saying that this is uh, the, the proof of it, but there are these indications. I use a software for my language study um, of the scriptures, a program that's called Bible Works. It's an incredibly powerful program. But it requires the user to have some competency in Greek and Hebrew. It wouldn't be much use to someone who doesn't have any knowledge of those languages. Now, there are other programs out there to study the Bible in its original languages, but they're not as powerful, though they have more bells and whistles. They generally seem to be designed to allow people who know nothing about the biblical languages to give an appearance of knowing something about them. Bible Works came out the year I graduated, and it was lauded by seminary professors and students and pastors and uh, other scholars. In 2018, Bible Works made this announcement. Bible Works has served the church for 26 years by providing a suite of professional tools aimed at enabling students of the word to rightly divide the word of truth. But it has become increasingly apparent over the last few years that the need for our service has diminished to the point that we believe the Lord would have us use our gifts in some other way. As of June 15, 2018, Bible Works will cease operation as a provider of Bible software tools. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing God's word. I think another indicator that the famine is coming is that meaningful theological education is in decline. The, the internet has made it convenient to replace real education with mere information transfer. Most theological educations are in financial distress today, and so they can't afford not to offer online education. And I can only tell you um, having, uh, in, my, in my doctoral work, having to take two online courses in theological research methodologies, I can tell you that I would have been greatly impoverished in my education if it had consisted of listening to online lectures and chatting questions to Dr. Ferguson or Dr. Keller or Dr. Gaffin or Dr. Edgar. Not all of my education took place in their classrooms. The richest parts of it took place at the lunch table, at the coffee counter, in their living rooms, or sitting in chapel with them every day, or next to church in some of them. Now, I won't venture to judge for other disciplines, but for theology, online education is an impoverished education. 
The internet has also allowed for the creation of a multitude of theological institutions that barely have any standards. They promise the same degrees and the churches, in most cases, recognize them. Why would anyone not take the easy road? When I was on the Candidates and Credentials Committee, I read the theological paper of one young man who also thankfully did not complete his trials for licensure and ordination. This paper wasn't exactly wrong, but it was, it was off somehow. It was shallow. It seemed like he didn't really understand what the authors were saying that he was citing. And when I questioned him about it and dug into it a little bit, I found out why. He hadn't actually read any of the books that he cited. He started his theological research with his conclusions already intact and what he sycophantically thought was the reformed position. And then he trolled the internet to find quotes of authors that seemed to support his conclusions. Rather than being challenged, changed, corrected, rebuked, trained, he just began with what already he thought was true and then just went out on the internet to support it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It appears to me that there is a spiritual Chinese milk scandal taking place. Do any of you remember the Chinese milk scandal, 2018? 2018, about a quarter million infants in the U.S. appeared to be starving to death. Doctors at first, you know, when parents took them in, encouraged them that they needed to, they needed to supplement their feeding. They needed to increase their formula intake, but it didn't help. Around 50,000 babies were hospitalized. Six of them died. The problem was that the Chinese manufacturer had put melamine in the milk because it was cheap, because it added a feeling of fullness. The problem was it is not food. There's no nutritive value to it. And the famine that was caused by the milk scandal posed a much greater danger than if there had been no food because people thought they were eating. They thought that their children were eating. The children would eat until they were satiated, until they were full and couldn't eat anymore. The concept of the megachurch goes back to the late 19th century, but it became a model that American churches aspired to with the rise of Willow Creek Church in Chicago. Before his uh, heartbreaking decades-long pattern of sexual misconduct came to light, Bill Hybels had noted about the model of their church, we've created a community of Christians that is 10 miles wide and one inch deep. I've never aspired to pastor a megachurch, nor would I attend one if I were not in the ministry. If Jesus knows each of his sheep by name, it is hardly too much to ask that his under-shepherds do the same. Michael, over the years, you've been an encouragement to me when I've called you at times to cry on my coffee, ask you for prayer for some frustrations that I have, and you'll recognize the story that I tell you of the quasi-pastoral relationships of people that I've met, often through the C.S. Lewis Institute, 
uh, who attend megachurches, he will call me from time to time to ask to meet with me for pastoral counsel and advice. Help them figure out from the Bible what God's will is for a particularly difficult situation they're facing. And I've said to them, have you called your own pastor? And the answer that I've gotten, you remember these phone calls? I'm not high enough up the ladder to be able to get in to see him, but even if I did, in one case, but even if I did, he doesn't know the Bible or the history of theology well enough to help me with this. And so I said to him, why do you go? And he said, truthfully, because it's entertaining and easy and no one knows if I'm there or not and nothing is expected of me. That's been incredibly frustrating for me. And you've encouraged me in those situations to share God's word and the love of Christ generously. And you've been right. On occasion, I've listened to some megachurch sermons and I've thought, is this really what people are getting a steady diet of? I frequently hear denunciations of the culture's sins, but not the sins of their churches. And the problem with that, you know, is that the culture's sin won't send any of you to hell, but your own sins may. But the sins of the culture are on parade and they're celebrated in the media. And the sins of the church are not. Those are hidden. And the sins of the church are so often not addressed in the megachurch because the sheep aren't known. They don't know the sheep. Brother uh, Bill told me some time ago about an article that he'd read by a PCA pastor that was entitled, I'm a better pastor than John MacArthur. The author didn't claim to be a better orator than John MacArthur, but a better pastor because unlike MacArthur, he knows every one of his sheep. Which leads to another indicator that a famine is coming today, and that is that the Volks Mortua reigns supreme. Now, Pardon my slipping in some Latin there. But I do it to contrast the Reformation principle of the vox viva. That phrase vox viva means living voice. And I don't have time to outline the reformers' brilliant exegetical insights that led them to the doctrine. But the idea is that God speaks to his people particularly and specifically through a living voice when the word of God is accurately proclaimed in the context of the situation in which the people are known to the one preaching. It's reflected in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 89, when it says the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means unto salvation. Reflected in the second Helvetic confession, which after clarifying that the Bible alone objectively is God's word, says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. When King James I of England tried to uh, gain and maintain control over the churches, he floated the idea of having the archbishop supply preachers with the sermons that they were to preach each Sunday. The Puritans went nuts. James, trying to assuage them, 
assured them that the sermons would be orthodox. They'd be, they'd be carefully checked for orthodoxy, but James entirely missed the point. The archbishop did not live with the people in each parish. He could never be the vox viva, the living voice of Christ to them. But what James I couldn't achieve, we've willingly embraced. It, it began, innocently enough, with sermons broadcast on the radio. It's a great idea, isn't it? It extends the reach, gets the word into people's living rooms where it wouldn't ordinarily be. But we never stopped to think about the possible consequences. Those consequences increased when sermons and services were broadcast on television, but then at least you had to meet at an appointed time. But now we have YouTube, preaching on demand. What need is there for the church? After all, theology is just an information dump, and I can get dumped on by my phone as well as anything else. You have uh, no doubt noticed, Michael, in our conversations that I seldom listen to electronic preaching. Two people I do listen to from time to time are Sinclair Ferguson and Tim Keller because both of those men were my teachers and I've known them personally. I've eaten lunch with them. I know who they are. By contrast, did any of us know who Ravi Zacharias was? Anybody know him personally? And did any of us know who he really was? And if you think when someone who is teaching the word of God, but living in a way to cover up such egregious sin, does not in that teaching slip in micro-justifications for their sin, you do not know the human heart very well. I don't listen to sermons online very often, not only because they're a vox mortua, but because I don't know those people. Now, listen, I'm not going to condemn every celebrity Christian who has done so, but I will say, be very wary of people who name ministries or study Bibles or other things after themselves. It may be something other than the gospel that they have an interest in. Well, I had thought that YouTube was the pinnacle of the Volks Mortua. I was wrong. Now AIs will write our sermons for us. Soulless robots will now be instructing us in the word of God. And I've already seen the justifications for it online. People say, I've, I've, I've run some of these programs and they're quite orthodox. James I would have been happy. They entirely missed the point. So brother Ben Green pointed out to me when he and I were talking about this, an AI-generated sermon reduces the preacher to an actor who reads a script, who himself has not been transformed, has not been corrected, reproved, rebuked, and trained in righteousness by wrestling with and praying through a text all week long. And who's to blame for this pathetic AI state of affairs? I am. Because generative AIs work by stealing and compiling data. And where do they get the data? They get it from me. 
Every time I publish an article online, every time one of my sermons is posted on YouTube, it becomes grist for the AI mill. But what's the solution? You can't not be online today. To not exist online is to not exist. I tell you that for this reason, simply. The coming famine cannot be stopped. We can't do something to avert it. AI sermons, Vox Mortua as they are, may be orthodox for now. But as pastors lose their ability to discern orthodoxy because ministry entails something other than studying God's word. As knowledge of the original languages becomes, if not lost, scarce. As theological education is reduced to an information dump through an online forum. As theological papers are written not by reading books and being transformed, but by looking for quotes to confirm what people's deceptively wicked hearts already believe, the ability to discern what is orthodox and what is not will diminish. The orthodoxy of those sermons will degrade, and then those sermons will become the grist for the mill for the next AI-generated sermons. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. We're the victims of our own affluence. A few years ago, I read a study of a questionnaire that uh, compiled... Uh, the data and the situation in the American Evangelical Church, and one was done in 2005, the other in 2015. The study asked several questions, then it compiled the data, and it asked respondents to self-assess how committed they were to Christ and then how committed they were to their local church, as well as questions about church attendance. In 2005, those who identified themselves as Uh, highly committed to Christ and highly committed to their local church uh, indicated that they attended their own church about 48 Sundays out of the year. By 2015, those who self-rated as highly committed to Christ, highly committed to their local church, uh, indicated, self-indicated that their uh, attendance at their own church was about 25 Sundays each year. The the reason for that wasn't because necessarily that they were blowing off church. It's easy, relatively cheap travel, and the increased availability of viewing services online. That's not to scold or chastise. It's a wonderful thing that people can visit their families. It used to be that, you know, at one time, if you take the wagon train from the east and went west, you're never going to see your family again. But what it does mean is that on any given Sunday, the church is likely to be half empty. And that influences the rising generation. It's difficult to analyze all the factors that go into a call to the ministry. But surely as young men consider a life's vocation, half empty sanctuaries are not a great incentive for considering the pastoral ministry. And that's reflected in the student bodies of seminaries around the country. Gordon-Conwell Seminary just put up its 118-acre campus um, in Hamilton, Massachusetts for sale, moved to rented 
facilities in Boston because the student body uh, rather rapidly deflated. And I don't know if you saw the latest New Horizons or looked at it, but we've got a number of mission works with no one to staff them. Perhaps not so well known is the looming crisis that we face in the next 10 to 15 years as men retire from the ministry and there aren't people behind them to take their place. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So what can we do? Well, if you mean what can we do to stop it, the answer to that is nothing. You could more easily stop a tsunami by holding up a sheet of cardboard. But it's not the first time the church has faced a famine. It lived through a centuries-long famine of the word living up, leading up to the Reformation. In his day, the prophet Habakkuk looked at the situation of, of God's people, and what was happening in Israel, wondered when God would do something about it, and God responded, he said, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to send, Israel, I'm going to send Babylon against you as a judgment. That was not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. And he pleaded with God for another solution, but there was none. That judgment was coming. Finally, in faithful resignation, Habakkuk said, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled because, because the situation was going to be bad and there was nothing that he could do about it. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. That that God would remedy the situation. And in the meantime, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And there will be a future for Christ's church too. Many souls starved to death leading up to the Reformation, but God preserved a remnant. I don't see how the coming famine can be averted. But Michael and Julie, teach your kids where to find food in a famine. Make it a priority. I fear that before they reach adulthood, it will be scarce they're not going to find it in the Vox Mortua of the internet. They won't find it in the melamine-laden milk of the megachurch. But they'll find it in communities of committed Christians where there's a Vox Viva. In places where young men will be called by God to give up their precious years for job training to go somewhere to learn the word of God young men who will refuse to take the easy road of the increasing number of seminaries that no longer require Greek or Hebrew or the actual reading of books or of in-person classes. I think this famine will be different than the one Amos talked about in this respect. 
that then people knew they were starving, but, but people don't know when they're starving, when they can be satiated with junk food. And perhaps, Michael and Julie, God has plans for young Wesley to be one who not merely knows how to forage spiritual food in the coming famine, but he may, like Joseph, be called by God to be one who will become the distributor of that food in the famine. If he is, he'll have a hard road ahead of him. It will mean sacrifice for him. But if God calls him to what Paul referred to as the noble task, don't allow your fear for the hardship that he will face to dissuade, to cause you to dissuade him from it. God determines the times we live in, and, and perhaps young Wesley, like Queen Esther, has been born for such a time as this. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I'll send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Three decades of ministry. And I've watched as the evening service was discontinued because it was too poorly attended. I've watched as the Sunday evening dinners and study uh, evaporated and were discontinued because they were too poorly attended. Watched the monthly men's breakfast and prayer and study time disappear because it was too poorly attended. We're all so busy. It's the world we live in. There are so many things that compete for our time. But we're confident that when we turn the tap on, water will come out. We're confident that when we go to the store, bread will be on the shelf. And if it's not, well, we've got the internet. We've got YouTube and generative AIs. We've got the Volksmortua to feed us. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to south, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. But God is faithful even in times of famine. God sent Joseph to preserve a remnant in the famine and to keep alive many survivors. So pray and prepare and trust in God. And Father, give us grace, we pray, uh, to do that. In Jesus' name.